All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with stranger assaults on the rise in Vancouver. Four random attacks a day on average, according to the Vancouver police. But it was anything but an average day in the Fairview neighborhood of the city on Saturday. 40 minutes of mayhem as a man armed with broken glass assaulted and threatened multiple women damaging and smashing property as he went let's discuss now with my guest karen mcdonald karen lives in the apartment building where this guy went on a rampage she's a witness to the mayhem in her neighborhood karen thank you for coming on thanks very much mike okay karen how did this start like when did this begin on saturday when when did you first notice something was happening um on saturday i was at home and and um it was just afternoon and i heard smashing glass it sounded, I thought it was somebody was breaking a plate. Um, then I heard running. Then I heard my uh, side door open and I heard more smashing of glass, more running. Then I heard more smashing of glass. And, and um, where I live, um, there's a courtyard and it sort of sounded like it could have come from the back alley. So about 10 minutes later, kind of peeked myself uh, um, outside the door. There was um, police, were, they were everywhere, which was great. Um, and then um, I went went down to the street with my dog, and uh, they had apprehended the the um, the I can't say gentleman, the man that huh. um, assaulted all these women. Right. What did you see him do? Like, what did he do around your neighborhood there? Um, well, what I saw, like I I saw, I was in my apartment, so I was safe. But um, he apparently had he'd gone through the neighborhood, punching women in the face. Um, the two, the poor gals in my apartment, I just, my heart goes out to them. He was chasing them around the the apartment. Um, he was, he went downstairs with blood and glass everywhere. He uh, chased them onto Oak Street. Um, they were running frantically. Finally, I, apparently they got into a car and said drive. And uh, the police apprehended um, the suspect after that. You mean they, the, the the women he was chasing, you mean they jumped into like a random, like a stranger's car and asked yeah. them to drive? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so they, they were desperate to escape. Well, apparently he was saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. They went um, to escape downstairs. We've got three, uh, so I guess, sort of like four levels. They thought the fastest way would be to go downstairs um, where like the laundry room. There are a couple of suites there. They ran throughout, he ran, chased them throughout the building. They finally escaped onto Oak Street and went, uh, apparently went um, to Broadway. And there was like, you know, half, uh, lots of traffic on this Saturday afternoon. So, yeah, they got in a car um, and that lovely person took them in, into safety. So, speaking to Karen, been a, it's been a first. I'm, I'm sure I know it has been. I know this has been traumatic for you and your neighbors there, and I'm grateful to you for you speaking about it. My guest is Karen McDonald. She's a resident of the neighborhood where these random attacks happened on, on Saturday. So, Karen, you, you mentioned that there was blood and there was broken glass. Like, did he smash a window? Is that what happened? Or um, He initially he went through the front door, which is on uh, 10th Avenue. He kicked it in. It's probably about a four-plane paint, glass. Um, then he kicked in the door um, just down the hallway from me. Uh, two stained glass windows. It was his own blood, so it wasn't any. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't the blood of anyone, any uh, victims. Yeah. Um, but apparently there was blood. All I didn't see the blood, but my landlord, who's been awesome, said there was blood on the third floor, 
blood on the second floor glass everywhere. Like he had just gone on a rampage, smashing so, glasses in the windows. So he was going up and down stairs in your apartment building? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh man, and this yeah. is where he was like he was confronting people in the building, and then they, what they ran, they just ran for cover, and ran out of the building to escape him, or what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. He was chasing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was he? Uh, you say like he was threatening to kill people. Like, did he have a weapon on him? Uh, from what I heard from one of the uh, my neighbors, is he had a shard of glass and he had a weapon, and he was chasing them with a weapon. With glass, with broken glass, you mean? I, I believe. Yeah, that's what they said. It was like a shard of glass. That yeah, he was chasing them with. Right, and you mentioned that you know your neighbors, your friends there in that building got the worst of it. Then they 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 suffered more than you did. Like what what have they told you? Like how was their state of mind? How did they feel about they have, this? I don't I don't believe the one girl girl's been back to the apartment since. I saw my old um, my old landlord, and he said they haven't been back, and that was on uh, Monday. Why? Because so they're too, I think they're taking refuge at, at her mom's place. They're too scared. They're too traumatized by it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Karen, what is this neighborhood like on a on a normal Saturday? I mean, is this a peaceful part of the city typically? Oh, absolutely. It's it's about a block away from VGH. Um, I find it safe. Like I've got a little dog that I take him out six thirty in the morning, ten o'clock at night. I've never felt scared in my life. Um, you know, it's just like people are friendly. There's a lot of nurses and doctors in the area. The building's secure. You have to get in through a fob. There's cameras in the building. So I've never felt any sense of insecurity in the building. That it's just kind of like, you know, you're at home and it's just like I've never felt any threat until Saturday. Until, until this. And what was, what do you think was the frame of mind of, of this person who was doing this? I mean, did he seem like out of his mind? Did he seem like high on drugs? Are you able to characterize like what was, why he was doing this? Well, he must, I, I'm sure there must have been some mental illness. Um, yeah. I only saw him being taken away on a stretcher. Um, they had him uh, pinned down on a stretcher. So I only saw like his head. They had it like there were police all over him. So I didn't really actually catch a good look at, at what he looked like. Um, I just saw them take, and I was at a distance away from, from where they were taking him away. Yeah. And is this something that you mentioned, this is a peaceful neighborhood. You've always felt safe there. Has this, Very. has this changed your opinion of the neighborhood at all? I mean, are you a little bit more wary no. now after this? Oh, I'm, I'm very, uh, of course I am. Um, even yeah. the other day, it's just like, I took Monday off cause I was, quite the wreck and it's just like you know somebody was biking beside me and it was just like i just startled and very much more aware of my surroundings where people before you know it's just like maybe i wasn't aware of it but um i'm just yeah very kind of in touch with things my surroundings and being a little scared <laughs> yeah is this a is this a concern for you and your neighbors like do you are do people worry that maybe the the character of the neighborhood is changing or the city is is becoming less safe. Do you have any worries or concerns about that? Um, I didn't until Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is a random thing, right? It could have happened anywhere. It could have happened in Shaughnessy or West Vancouver or anywhere. You know, it's just it happened to be that, that area he was in, and, and he was just he was targeting innocent women. You know, men, men were walking by, and he didn't even... No, it didn't even budge to, you know, um, say anything to the man, but it was just like you see women and it was like chasing two joggers and they, you know, they, they 
got they were safe and then you know punching women in the face and so it was like targeted against women definitely yeah so he was just it seemed like he was targeting women only where you know police are saying there were five women here who were uh, targeted here in this mayhem so it looked like yeah. it seemed to you like he was he wasn't going after men he was going specifically after women right yeah correctly yeah yeah, yeah. okay does this last question for you karen for you and your neighbors there in this this neighborhood in, Fair, in Fairview, are you changing any of your routines? Like, are, are people trying? Are people taking any steps or precautions to protect themselves? I don't know, putting new locks on their doors or anything like that. Yeah, it was actually kind of funny because uh, on um, on the other day, and it was I was out taking my dog to walk, and there was a gentleman trying to buzz into the to the building. And I kind of looked, and he said, it's okay. He says, I know what's going on. Cause I, I, obviously, I'm not going to let any stranger in. He says, I'm here to put new locks on my daughter's door. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, yeah, people are obviously, and it's just been, it's usually, it's, uh, you know, seeing people in the hallway skip the dishes and taking for walks. I haven't seen one person in the hallway in the last two days. So I think people are, you know, everyone in my building is pretty shaken up as to what happened. Karen, I'm very grateful to you for speaking to me today. I'm sorry you and your neighbors went through this trauma, and uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine now. Russian, the advances continuing in the country. The war is getting bloodier there. And as the Russian troops uh, continue to invade the country, there are growing calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. So NATO-led enforcement of the skies over the country. Would this be a good idea? Now, this has been ruled out by the major NATO powers. We can play some clips for you on that in a moment. But we continue to hear voices of people saying this is what the world should do, a no-fly zone over the skies of Ukraine. Now, have a listen to this. This is retired Canadian General Frank Hillier, former commander of the Canadian Armed Forces here speaking to the CBC on the need for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Have a listen to this. They need weapon systems, they need ammo, they need long-range systems, and they need a no-fly zone over the Ukraine to allow them to operate to defend their own country and to be able to actually stand up to Putin and in negotiations say, hey, we'll accept the unconditional surrender of all the Russian soldiers in the Ukraine. Okay, this got retired General Canadian General Frank Hillier there. U.S. President Joe Biden, though, so far ruling out this kind of option. He does not want to risk a world war. Have a listen to Biden here. You have two options. Start a third world war, go to war with Russia physically, or two, um, make sure that uh, a country that acts so contrary to international law ends up paying a price for having done it okay let's discuss now with my guest zach beecham zach is the senior correspondent for vox in washington dc and i recommend his story on this topic i've just tweeted it out for you there so give me a follow on twitter you'll find zach's story zach thank you for coming on today thank you for having me okay zach your article for vox getting a lot of attention and traction online here the headline a no-fly zone in ukraine is a catastrophically bad idea. Tell me why you think that's the case. Yeah, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, a, a no-fly zone is not something that just magically happens. Right? You can't just say, I declare no-fly zone, and then no planes will be flying over Ukraine. 
What would have to happen would be a NATO force that would go into the skies of Ukraine, NATO aircraft, shooting down Russian planes. Because the Russians aren't yeah. just going to stop flying because NATO says they shouldn't be flying there anymore. Yeah. Right? The no-fly zone will need to be enforced to stop the Russians from flying missions in support of their ground invasion. That means a no-fly zone is tantamount to declaring war on Russia. It's just a way of dressing it up in fancy language that detracts from the reality that we'd be risking a nuclear exchange. Yeah, a I, very high risk, should add. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty clear, and we've seen that from U.S. President Joe Biden has made that point. Also, U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the Canadian government here in Canada, has also pointed out they don't want to escalate this. They don't want to risk a world war, especially when Putin has got his finger on a nuclear button. I mean, he talked about nukes the other day. Your thoughts? So I don't want to get everybody all panicked and give them the sense that like nuclear war is imminent because it's not, right? But at the same time, we're in one of the scariest nuclear crises that we've been in since the, probably the scariest one since the Cold War, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why are these... Well, first of all, the Russians believe that this is an existential issue for them, control over Ukraine. It's really fundamental to the future health, safety, and survival of the Russian nation as Putin understands it. He's willing to take significant risks here. And second, you have a lot of people recklessly calling for the use of military force in Ukraine without thinking about how that will be perceived by the Russians, how what Russian strategic nuclear doctrine says about using nuclear weapons in a conventional conflict, which indicates that if they're losing a conflict and they think the cost could be severe, they'd be willing to use nuclear weapons first. That kind of first-use wow. doctrine makes the risks pretty high of any kind of NATO intervention, especially one that would turn the tide of the war. And given like just literally geographically where Ukraine is, put NATO forces on Russia's doorstep and at currently at war with Russia. So the, the, the notion that you take the risk that in, in the heat of the moment or a crisis, somebody miscalculates and sees a missile launch as being a nuclear missile launch and decides to hit their button, they're, they're very high. They're not like 100%. It's possible that you could get away without that happening. Right. But they're also extremely high and way, way, way too high for any reasonable policymaker to tolerate. Despite that, though, we continue to see calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. We just heard from that retired Canadian general making the case for a no-fly zone. We've had retired U.S. generals make the same point. You've got, as you pointed out in your article for Vox, you've, you've got some politicians in NATO states proposing a move like this. Uh, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger tweeting that they, a no-fly zone would give the Ukrainians a fair fight here to go up against the Russians. Is there any indication that this idea of a no-fly zone is gaining any kind of political traction in, in America right now? Or is, it, or is this one Republican congressman kind of a lone voice out there, or are there others? So there are a few others. Uh, I believe Senator Roger Wicker, also a Republican, called for a no-fly zone. Um, and there, there are a handful of others. But I think this is best read as political positioning rather than any actual like, substantive drive in, US, in the U.S. policy apparatus to implement this policy, right? Like, so inside the Republican Party, which is, I think, where you see a lot of this happening, there's a really interesting divide between people who think uh, Biden is being too harsh on Putin and people who think Biden is being too soft on Putin. Uh, now, Trump and a few other people are the, too, are the too hard side, and they're getting increasingly isolated given really bipartisan condemnation of the Russian invasion and, and it broad international condemnation if you look at the UN vote that just happened. It was incredible. Only five countries voted against sanctioning uh, or criticizing more accurately Russia's 
invasion in the UN General Assembly. It's the, the amount of, of public pressure on this domestically and internationally is remarkable. And so you've got people like Kinzinger, who should know better, uh, really should, uh, being on the side of, well, let's propose a maximalist option that won't happen that allows us to say we were more hawkish on this than Biden was. He didn't do what we said he would do. I see it as, as purely that kind of political calculation designed to get on the right side of public opinion for that flank of the Republican Party. I do not believe that anyone in the U.S. government is taking this seriously. I, there's just yeah. no evidence that in the Pentagon or in the White House, this idea is even under the slightest amount of consideration. Right. Speaking of Zach Beecham, senior correspondent for Vox in Washington, D.C., U.S. Uh, White, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about this the other day, Zach, about a no-fly zone. Here is what she said, and then I'll get your thoughts. Well, the president has been very clear uh, that he is not intending to send U.S. troops to fight a war with Russia. And I think what's important to note here is that is essentially what this would be a step toward, because a no-fly zone would require implementation. It would require deploying U.S. military to enforce uh, which would be a direct conflict, uh, potentially a direct conflict and potentially a war with Russia, which is something we are not planning to be a part of. Okay, so that's uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, making that point pretty plainly, as you've had described, Zach. Interesting, though, last night in the State of the Union address by President Biden, he did kind of draw a line, though, for NATO partners if Putin continues any sort of aggressive march through through Eastern Europe. So he said, look, do not cross this line into Poland or any other neighboring NATO countries here. Like, if that happens, then all bets are off, right? That would change everything. Things are are very scary in the event that that the war moves into a NATO country. Then then we're talking maybe maybe go hang out at the cottage for the next foreseeable (laughs) future. Uh, Right, but if that's an option for you. If, uh, you know, that, that, that... does happen, yeah, it's a disaster. I don't think it's likely to, because nuclear blackmail works both ways. Right? It's deterring the U.S. from getting involved in Ukraine, and Putin can be confident that there, that there won't be an international intervention because he is credibly threatened to use nuclear weapons in that event. The other, the other the thing, side, yeah, they, he doesn't want to attack a NATO power because then they might retaliate with nukes. He, he sure. doesn't want that risk either. When you have your troops in place in a particular place, that creates barriers to the other side aggressing in that area. So the fact that there are international troops and, and a treaty alliance in place with NATO allies on the eastern flank means that the, the odds of, of the war going there, I think, are relatively low. Yeah, and then no one wants to see this uh, escalator spiral out of control. One of the other things that occurred to me was you've got some NATO partners here, notably Hungary, that has refused to allow weapon transit through Hungary to Ukraine. And they're a member of NATO. Like, if even if NATO theoretically was to say, okay, yeah, we think it's this is a dire enough situation, we're going to impose a, a no-fly zone over over Ukraine. What, would that not require unanimous consent of all the NATO partners, which doesn't seem likely? Uh, so, the, you could get basically you would get the United States acting alone, and yeah, and. Yeah. It, you you would sort of drag other NATO countries into it if you want to get around Hungary, uh, which yeah. is a, a sort of pro-Putin government um, in some ways. But the U.S. won't do that, so it's a moot point. And only the U.S. could potentially drag the rest of NATO along with it. France wouldn't act, act unilaterally. Britain wouldn't. Neither of them probably have the capacities to take on Russia without American support, so they wouldn't do it. Right? It's just 
uh, as is so often the case when it comes to Western defense policies, so much hinges on the decisions in Washington. And the Biden administration has, I think, rather smartly drawn a very clear line uh, of, of no overt military intervention. In fact, they didn't even say overt. They said yeah. no military intervention. Right. Now, my, it would not surprise me if there are some covert U.S. troops that are there providing arms to the Ukrainians. That's well within the realm of possibility and might well be happening. Uh, but then if they get killed, the U.S. would disavow them and say they're acting alone or whatever. Hey, Zach, last question. Uh, last question for last question for you zach as we continue to go forward here with this crisis though we we do see some nato troop movements uh and deployment of of reinforcements along the sort of eastern eastern border of of nato controlled territory what is your analysis and read of that right so that is an attempt to bolster the strategy i was just talking about the idea here uh in western capitals seems to be to draw a very, 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 very clear line to the Russians to tell them, we have no interest in fighting you. You better not attack us first. And to prove our point, we're going to put troops in the places that you might attack. So if you attack, let's say, Estonia, tiny Baltic country, you're going to attack American troops and you will bring the United States into that war. And so sending those troops is a way of signaling that NATO's threat is serious, but also while at the same time saying we're not going to use those troops to get involved in the Ukraine conflict so Russia doesn't feel a need to preemptively attack them before what it sees as an international intervention in Ukraine. It's this very delicate diplomatic military dance where you're trying to convey a message to the Russians and to get through the fact that they don't trust what you're saying, can't know your intentions, and sees you rightly as an enemy in a lot of respects. So I, you know, I have to say, I've been very critical of the Biden administration in a lot of different ways, especially their policies on trade and immigration. But I think that they are doing a, a pretty impressive job in, in handling this crisis. And Zach, they've done a really good job towing the right line. Zach, thanks very much for being a guest on the show today. I appreciate your analysis. Thank you. You're welcome. Happy to be on. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. And here we go now with stranger assaults in Vancouver, random unprovoked attacks happening every day, according to the Vancouver Police Department Four random attacks a day, according to the VPD. We have covered this issue closely on the show. Many residents feeling unsafe in their own neighborhoods. Let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mayor Stewart, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for having me. Okay, Mayor Stewart, random, unprovoked attacks in our city. It's happening every day, including this terrifying series of attacks on five different women in Fairview on Saturday. Is it still your position today that Vancouver is a safe city right now? You know, Mike, uh, the incidents you're talking about that we've all seen are are shocking and unacceptable. They uh, make your gut churn, and you can see from uh, the victims who are have been interviewed the look of terror on their face and this is something that we are absolutely getting on top of and absolutely need to get on top of everybody needs to feel safe in this city let's start with the david lamb park incident uh we saw a bunch of thugs come in from out of the city uh re- repeatedly kicking a guy in the head while he was uh down on the ground um, i'm really thankful to the uh the police for grateful to them for catching these idiots and uh, making sure they, they face the full extent of the law. And that's exactly why I made sure that the police were fully funded this year in order they can, they can do their job and 
stop this type of violence or if it does happen to make sure that these idiots face the, the full extent of the law you you had said you had said earlier mayor stewart that the city is safe that you personally feel safe walking down the streets of the city i mean we've heard from many listeners and callers on on the show even today that for a man to walk down the street an able-bodied man like yourself you're at less risk or vulnerability than a, a woman someone who is elderly someone who is a visible minority these are the people who are being attacked right they they prey on the vulnerable do you still think that it, it's wise for you to say that okay it's okay for me to walk down the street i feel safe clearly other people do not yeah mike it, it doesn't matter how i feel what what's important is that i recognize that other people are not feeling safe in the city residents are not feeling safe and more importantly that i'm doing something about it so like i said on the David Lamb Park incident, that underscores why we needed to full, need to fully fund the police uh, to make sure they can do the job that they're built to do, which is to catch these thugs and make sure they face the full extent of the law. The second incident that you were talking about was uh, in Fairview, that neighborhood that was terrorized for almost an hour by somebody that was clearly facing a, a, mental, it was a mental health crisis. Uh, the police thankfully apprehended this guy, but... Uh, it's simply arresting simply isn't enough. What we need is uh, the answer, complex care uh, delivery. So we need to make sure that we have the services in place for these folks who are obviously in distress. And that's why I'm so happy that uh, Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, has announced 55 uh, complex care beds for uh, Vancouver Ma and many more across the province, which is the answer to that problem. Okay. Mayor, Mayor Stewart, when you make the point that you believe the police should be fully funded in the city of Vancouver, it was not long ago that the Vancouver Police Department put forth a budget request for an additional $5.7 million to address the crime and the rising pressures on them to protect citizens in this city, and you're part of a city council that rejected it and effectively froze the, froze the police budget, forcing the police department to actually no, appeal totally to the problem. There. Mike, you're totally mistaken there. What? If, you go to the, if you go to the budget this year, the police were not only fully funded, their request was fully funded, they actually we gave them additional funds to meet uh, their contract, uh, their collective agreement uh, obligations. So the police are fully funded. A million dollars a day goes into policing. And uh, I really commend Chief Palmer for using these resources wisely and moving them around the city when he discovers hot spots through their, uh, you know, their analysis. So, so I, the I think the police are. Yep, the, go ahead. The, the police continue to say that they're underfunded. They need help. They need more boots on the ground. They need more resources. I mean, if you take a look at the the city's police budget, it's barely budged despite a thirteen percent population increase in the That's city not, of Vancouver. Actually, Mike, you're you're totally mistaken. How this process works is that the police board makes a request to the city. The police board says how much money they, they need to, to, to fund the police. And we fully met that request this year. In fact, we gave them more than what they asked for. So that's how the process works. The, the city can't arbitrarily just increase the amount of money that goes to the police. It has to come through the police board. And we fully met the police board's request for funding this year. So again, uh, we gave the police what they asked for this year. And then Chief Adam Palmer is doing using those resources to tackle crime as he sees fit. So why did the police board appeal to the province now to for the city to adequately fund the police department in the previous year? Then 
all departments across the city took a hit through COVID. Uh, yeah. We had to lay off. We had to lay off eighteen hundred people, uh, and that process that uh, that issue is working its way through the province right now. Let However, play- this this year, the police are fully funded. The board got their full request and more. Mayor, Mayor Stewart, let me play a couple of the voices that we're hearing on our show every day when we talk about these issues and get your thoughts. So this morning we talked about the the series of random attacks on women in the Fairview neighborhood that we saw on Saturday. It was 40 minutes of mayhem in that neighborhood. I spoke to Karen McDonald, who lives there in that apartment building where all this happened this morning. Here's what she told me this morning. Get your thoughts. It, this is a random thing, right? It could have happened anywhere. It could have happened in Shaughnessy or West Vancouver or anywhere. You know, it's just, it just happened to be that, that area he was in, and, and he was just he was targeting innocent women. Men were walking by, and he didn't even say anything to the men. Okay, my point there that she raised, which I think is an important one, is that they were tar- this man was a targeting women in that neighborhood, not men. If there's a man walking by, he didn't bother them. He was going after women this is the vulnerable who are being preyed upon in in our city what are your concerns there because a lot of people remember your comment that you're not afraid to walk down the streets of this uh, the streets of the city as a man i think it feels different for a woman i absolutely uh sympathize with uh the terror that's being expressed there Uh, this guy was was having a clear uh psychotic break uh very grateful to the police for apprehending him uh, when when they were uh, notified of this of this uh, terrible incident. The question is, what happens with this guy after he's arrested by the police? And that's the question that's facing mayors right across the province. Again, uh, the woman you interviewed is correct that this could happen anywhere and is happening everywhere across the province. And that's why I'm working with the 13 mayors of the biggest cities across BC working with the police and the province to find ways to better address this, this critical problem in our city. And the only way forward, you can't arrest your way out of this problem. There has to be treatment for these folks, whether it's voluntary treatment that's occurring through the 55 complex care beds that we're bringing to the city or non-voluntary confinement, which are the two ways that you have to deal with this Right. However, we just do not have the facilities. As everybody knows, we do not have the facilities, and we need the province to invest more so we have the facilities to deal with these folks, preferably Look, before any of these incidents occur. Speaking to Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart about crime in the city. Mayor Stewart, let me ask you about some of the trouble that we're seeing in, in specific neighborhoods, and you've made the case that crime has actually gone down in the city. When I speak to people in some of these troubled neighborhoods, whether it's Gastown, Davie Street, Yale Town, Strathcona, Granville, downtown Eastside, you hear a different story from them. They don't feel like crime is going down. They say that it's getting worse. Now, let me play a, a clip here of a caller on the show yesterday talking about Gastown and how are we going to protect tourists who may be returning here in the months ahead when they go to visit a historic neighborhood like Gastown. Have a listen to Mayor Stewart, and they'll get your thoughts. I'm really, really worried. Um, in about a month or so, we're about to have thousands of tourists come off those ships and meander around Gastown, and there are going to be people that are going to meander a couple of blocks the wrong way, and they are going to be prime A-plus targets. How are we going to deal with that? Are we going to warn them? 
don't walk two blocks over, you likely will be ripped off and mugged. And what's the mayor going to think about this? Okay, that was a, a caller on yesterday's show. Mayor Stewart, your thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, um, you know, I, I commend the police for their work. Uh, they're reporting to us through their statistics that crime is down across the city. However, you are correct, and your caller's correct. In particular neighborhoods and in particular crime categories, there are increases. Uh, so the VPD, uh, you know, uses their resources, uh, Chief Adam Palmer and his, and his executive. They find out where hotspots are, are happening, and then they are moving their uh, boots on the ground to different parts of the city and uh, running very sophisticated operations in order to target specific types of crime. So that, you know, after the funding is provided, we have to leave the the policing operations uh, to the chief and his executive because they're in charge of that and have to trust them that they are uh, going to do everything they can to make sure that that people feel safe. And that is, uh, that's what we have to do on, on that side of it. However, we do have to invest more in mental health and addictions treatment in order to stop this stuff before, before it happens. It's not good for the, the folks that are being mentioned, the tourists, the residents, but it's also not good for the folks that are going through uh, all this trauma as well. Mayor, so, Mayor, Mayor yeah. Stewart, f- final question for you. When we see these incidents on the streets of this city, I think there is obviously and clearly a large mental health component to it. When we see the attacks that happened on Saturday in Fairview, for example, the police are saying that the, this person appeared to be in the grips of some sort of psychotic episode. What are what are you doing to end this kind of revolving door system, this catch and release system where people who are obviously sick, mentally ill, addicted to drugs or both commit crimes and then they're released back onto the streets to commit more crimes? How, how do we stop that cycle? Well, for those who aren't facing mental health and addictions, they have to go to jail. Uh, that's what has to happen. And that's what I'm working with the police to make sure uh, that occurs for the folks that are uh, facing mental health breaks or, or severe addiction challenges, the, the courts, uh, you know, won't convict them, won't put them in jail, and they shouldn't. And that's why, uh, that's why we pressed the province so hard to deliver complex care beds, which have complete services to make sure that folks stabilize and don't, uh, don't enter the criminal justice system. And that is the path forward. That is the only path forward. If you ask any mayor across BC or across Canada, that is the only path forward. So I do recognize that many people in the city do not feel safe, and we're doing everything we can to make, that, to make sure they do feel safe, working with, together as a group, police, province, nonprofit agencies, housing agencies, to make sure that we get to the root of this problem and deliver for Vancouver. Mayor Kennedy Stewart, thank you for your time today. I'm very grateful to you for that. Thanks for the interview, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk distracted driving now. The month of March is distracted driving month in British Columbia. Police are teaming up with ICBC. Drive that message home. Leave your phone alone. Now, police say despite heavy fines and penalties for distracted driving, drivers still can't keep their fingers off their cell phones. Now, police are warning the public, we will catch you. We will ticket you. Have a listen to this ad now from BC Police. Smiley face emoji posters, map checkers, phone call makers, swipers, likers, and status updaters. We see you. Bumper to bumper, at a red light, just waiting your turn at a four-way stop. We see you. Because your cell phone hiding antics aren't a match for our tactics. 
New tools, new techniques, new ways to catch distracted drivers. Okay. All right. Yes, they will catch you. They've got new techniques to catch distracted drivers. Let's discuss now with my guest, Constable Mark Boucher. Mark is a police officer with the Vancouver Police Department. He is the recipient of the Chief Constable's commendation for his dedication to road safety and for his great work in the community. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Constable, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Constable, let's talk about distracted driving. Like, in your experience, in your career as a police officer, is distracted driving going down, or are you still seeing a ton of it out there? Well, Mike, since it started, uh, since this law started, uh, the, the, okay, to answer your question, it's not gone down. It's, uh, it's remained the same. Uh, just the way people manage their phones has gone, has, has changed. Uh, people, when it first started, were holding the phone to their ear and, and just yapping away on the phone. Uh, but now, the, you know, people are kind of trying to be cautious and, and hiding their phones a little bit, but uh, still no, no match for our, uh, our observations and our enforcement. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what what do you see out there? Let's say, you know, the classic situation is you're stopped at a red light and people say, okay, no problem. I can just check my phone real quickly. See, check, read that text message. Then do you, like, do people try to hide the phone after a police officer spots them? Well, it's too late by then because we've we've already seen it. So (laughs) that's... um we get all kinds of excuses and all kinds of uh, uh, reactions when, when we tap on the window and some of it's uh, startled because they don't see us at all. And, and some of it's, uh, you know, apologetic. So uh, it's, we, we see the gambit. Yeah. How do you catch, uh, how do you catch distracted drivers these days? I mean, I've even heard about undercover police officers who are at intersections. Are you guys doing that? Well, we, we've got all kinds of creative ways to, to catch distracted drivers. Some I can tell you about, some I can't. But, uh, you know, you just never know when, when you know, that panhandler at the median or the flagger, or the road crew, someone handing your lunch at the, the drive-thru might be a police officer kind of checking for distracted drivers. Um, so uh, typically it's, we're going to see you uh, drive by, your head's down, and we're going to come up to your window when, when it's set. Uh, possible and and see you using your phone so uh pretty typical enforcement techniques okay at the drive-through so you're telling me that if i'm going through the drive-through i'm picking up my big mac and i look at my phone that is technically distracted driving even if i look at my phone while i'm in the drive-through line uh technically yes because you are technically on a highway and now i know there's um you know, you have your, your apps to um, get your, your Big Mac and your, your, uh, your, there's apps for that, right? So you do have to show that. But uh, typically, uh, it's, it's going to be before or after that when the car's in motion. Uh, but when you're in traffic and you're stopped at a red light, you're still subject to, to this uh, rule that you need to have your phone uh, put away or mounted properly and just hands off. Right. Speaking to Constable Mark Boucher from the Vancouver Police Department about Distracted Driving Month in British Columbia. Mark, let me read a couple of statistics for you here. A brand new opinion poll out uh, shows that a large number of people uh, will openly admit they still, they're still doing some distracted driving. So this new poll out, 40%, 40% of BC drivers 
admit they will use their phone at least once out of every 10 trips behind the wheel. Does that number surprise you at all? Um, it, it doesn't, uh, just because I know how um, reliant on devices we are. And uh, it just, it's, it's tricky because you, you need your phone to do business and talk to your family and things like that. But uh, there's a time and a place. And I always recommend people, you know what, put it away, put it on uh, a mode that will be safe for driving. If you absolutely need it, pull over and, and, and use it to your heart's content. But, uh, yeah, it's, no, that, that stat doesn't surprise me at all. Okay, the penalty for distracted driving in British Columbia is, is a hefty one. You could get a $368 ticket. You could get four penalty points on your driving record. Um, yeah, I mean, and it, it ramps up with repeat offenses. Have you, in your career as a police officer, have you seen people rack up multiple tickets for distracted driving? Like maybe they get caught once or twice or maybe even more than that. Yes, there, there have been uh, many that I've seen with records that are uh, quite shameful. And, uh, you know, we, we don't give tickets. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to give tickets for just for kicks. I like to give tickets to change behavior. And if, if we're not changing behavior with, with a ticket and it's just uh, it should it should be an escalating fine, which it is uh, for people doing it repeatedly. Yeah. Hey, Mark, you, you're a decorated police officer for your uh, your work on public safety on the roads. I know I know it means a lot to you and you're a big advocate for blood donations as well in British Columbia. Can you does that come from your experience? Uh, like, have you been to some you must have seen some been to some bad accident sites, I imagine. Does that drive your you know, your your passion on this? Um. Yes and no. Like I, where I work is not so much the uh, the collision investigation section of our department, yeah. uh, but I, I have seen some pretty serious crashes. Uh, I I'm passionate because I, I I think that every single accident on the road is preventable, and whether it's uh, distraction, whether it's speeding, whether it's uh, impaired driving, all 100 percent. Uh, avoidable. So that's that's my passion. It's trying to educate people, trying to change behavior, uh, and you know keep our roads safe. Yeah. Do you think that the laws are, as they apply right now, are 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 fair and reasonable? Like I've talked to people who say, well, you know, if I'm sitting at a like let's say a level crossing, there's a train going across the road and the barrier is down you can't move you're practically sitting there in park waiting for this train to go by and then i get nailed for distracted driving because i look at my i look at my phone while i'm waiting for a train to pass by that's no that's not fair we don't think that's fair what would be your message to the public on that in terms of like for people who think that you know stopping someone ticketing someone at a red light for looking at their phone is uh is not fair what would you say to that yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I think that um, it's, you know, when you're, when you're doing it there, if you're okay with doing it there, where else are you okay doing it with? And I think, uh, you know, your, your habits will seep into other, other areas of your driving, whether you're, oh, I, I, you know, I can do it while I'm waiting for the train, ah, and I'll just, I'll just quickly tech, check a text while I'm, while I'm bombing down the highway. So it's, 
uh, you know, it's, it is tricky and every situation is different. Every, every situation, if it's, uh, if a ticket is disputed, uh, the facts are, are brought before the court and, you know, the, the justice makes a determination. So, uh, just yeah. depends on the, the situation and where the police are at that time doing enforcement. I don't think we, we stop at too many train crossings doing enforcement, but, uh, you, you do never know. Constable, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having me. Take care.